The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's time now for the Culture Club and oh, it's a good few years ago now that Philomena Linnett was with us here on the programme uh, talking about her son, the great Phil Linnett, who of course is dead now, oh, it's 35 years at this stage. Philomena died herself about two years ago when she had done so much to keep the memory of her son Phil alive and I'm sure she would be absolutely thrilled as well by the new documentary which has been made by Ema Reynolds Songs for While I'm Away which is in cinemas now but we are delighted today to have somebody else who knew Phil so well having spent about a decade in Thin Lizzy with him as one of the guitarists in the, the band Scott Gorham thank you very much for joining us here in the Culture Club at Today FM well, thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, how how are you doing through these COVID times? We're doing okay, and it's great to have guests who are able to join us in the program to t- take us away from thinking about COVID and talking about okay. other things. So, tell us, what do you make of the documentary that Emma Reynolds has put together, remembering Phil? Because there is a generation <laughs> of people who may be vaguely familiar with the music or not know it at all, and not understand mm. and realize that this may have been Ireland's first real rock superstar. Well, from uh, what I gather, he he actually was. I mean, this was a guy that uh, pretty much opened the door for uh, uh, Irish rock music. Uh, and, you know, after Phil and then Lizzie, you know, the door was widely open at that point. And, and the talent that uh, Ireland has always possessed just came flooding through. Uh, I mean, I know, I know there was Van Morrison, right? But... Uh, you know, growing up in Glendale, California, you know, we weren't really good at uh, accents, so we couldn't distinguish, uh, you know, Irish from uh, English. So we always thought Van Morrison really was uh, was a uh, from the UK rather than uh, Ireland. So, how did you become aware of Phil Lynott and Tin Lizzy and become a member of the band? <laughs> I, I only became aware of Thin Lizzy really uh, on the day that I walked in for the audition. Uh, a buddy of mine, uh, his name is Ruin O'Loughlin. I used to have a pub band called uh, Fast Buck, right? A bunch of American guys, and we used to travel around to different pubs. We had residencies around London. And I regularly used to get on the microphone and say, listen, if, just purely to be able to meet more uh, musicians, right? Uh, if there's anybody out in the audience, we're going to be here next Wednesday. You know, bring a guitar, some drumsticks, uh, bring your keyboard along and get up here and have a jam with us, right? And Ruin was one of the guys who got up and jammed with us, you know, on a pretty regular basis. Uh, and he came to me one night and he said, you know, there's this uh, Irish rock band. And immediately I went... Irish rock band. I I don't really know what that is. You know, I I hadn't heard that term at, at this point, right? And he said, you know, they're looking for a guitar player, and I think that you'd be perfect, you know, for that band. What do you think? You want to put your name in? And I said, yeah, because I literally had 30 days left of my visa, and I was getting back onto the airplane, and that was going to be my my big stab at trying to get into a, you know, a really sort of kick-ass band. Uh, so I, I'm going to play with anybody and everybody that I can at this point. And I said, absolutely, put my name in. And and he did. Uh, and I got, uh, you know, I called their management. And he said, you'll be meeting a guy named Phil down there. And I had no idea 
who Phil was. I had no idea, uh, you know, what a Thin Lizzy was or what their music was, uh, what what it sounded like. Because really, by the time I, I had gotten to England, you know, the their uh, hit song "Whiskey in the Jar" had come and gone, and they weren't being talked about any longer at this point. Uh, they weren't being written about, so I, I'd never read anything about them. So I was completely in the dark when I, you know, walked into this uh, African dinner club in Hampstead where they were rehearsing. And the first thing I saw was at the end of this corridor were all these black guys in like these flowery shirts and white pants, you know, setting out the tables, right? They were, they were getting ready for the dinner crowd. And off to my right, I heard somebody say, are you Scott? And I turned around and, he, and it was this black guy, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking he was part of the, you know, the, the, the dinner club, right? I said, yeah, I'm supposed to meet a guy named here named Phil. And he went, yeah. And he had this big ass grin on his face. He's thrust his hand out to shake my hand. And that's, uh, that was kind of the beginning of it all for me. Of course, it was an era when it was quite unusual to find Irish people who were black and Phil Linet was a trailblazer in that regard, yes. I think, in Ireland. But tell us about, there were two things I would think of when I think of Phil Linet would be one, maybe underappreciated, but a great songwriter and also an utterly charismatic figure. Am I correct in making those assumptions? You're right on both counts, Uh you know, Phil would walk into any room, right, and all heads would turn, right? He was the the focus of everybody's attention at this point. Just He was just this really striking kind of person. And then when you went up to, you know, when anybody went up to talk to him, uh, you could see they were completely engrossed in this personality, this personality of Phil Linet. It was, uh, it was quite something to watch, the way he could uh, just walk in and sort of transform a room. So if you were walking with him, you became like the secondary guy, you know. <laughs> Nobody really paid attention to you. He was all all Phil. And, and, that, and that's great. That's what you need in a front man. And uh, he really was, you know, the supreme front man. You know, we, he could walk. We could be playing at a place that's holding 10,000 people. And he could shrink that place down and make you feel like it was a like a real sort of intimate club kind of atmosphere. And that's not all uh, front men can do that. You know, they get kind of overawed with the situation and the thousands of people there. But I don't think I ever saw Phil overawed by anything, by any audience, no matter how many people were there. I was lucky enough to see you as part of Thin Lizzy in Cork in 1983, the Thunder and Lightning tour, which I think may have been your last tour. How many it was. albums did you appear on with Thin Lizzy? How many tours did you do with the band? Oh my God. Uh, <clears throat> well, I think, uh, uh, and I'm probably wrong. There's somebody out there will correct me, but I, I think there's uh, uh, 11 or, or 12 uh, recorded albums. And then there's a fair few uh, live albums. Uh, gigs. D- did you ask me how many well, gigs? I couldn't ask you done? how many individual <laughs> gigs, but you would have gone on a number of big tours with Thin Lizzy, wouldn't you? Because oh, as your yeah. Thunder and Lightning uh, tour was the last major one, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, absolutely. You know, as far as, you know, world tours, I think we probably did, you know, six or seven of them. Uh, yeah, we were always, always in an airplane. You're kind of never at home. Uh, which was fine with me, you know, because uh, for most of that, I, I wasn't married and 
I had no attachments. So being on an airplane or in a car, going to the gig, coming back to the hotel, I, I'm all, I was all good with that. You know, I mean, you did get tired. There, there's no doubt about that, you know, but uh, that, to put a number on how many gigs, it's just... I, I won't know, ask you to even estimate that. <laughs> okay, yeah, listen. And that's Scott, a mean question. <laughs> Scott Gorham is with us, a former lead guitarist with Thin Lizzy. Of course, one of the twin lead guitarists, as it often was with Lizzy. Uh, I'm going to ask you, and Culture Club, we always start by asking uh, the guest to tell us about the first single they can remember having, getting. What was it yours? I'm told Elvis Presley's Jailhouse Rock. Yeah, you know, the, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of music going on in the in the in the Gorham household. You know, the the old man was a you know a construction World War II veteran kind of guy, hard drinking kind of person, and uh, my mother w- was a little bit more you know music minded. But really, all you really heard was uh, you know her little transistor radio when <clears throat> I don't know she was doing the dishes or doing something in the kitchen. Then it would immediately go off, but. I do remember that every time that song, Jailhouse Rock by Elvis Presley, came on, I would grab my broom and sit in front of that mirror, and I was Elvis Presley for that three and a half minutes, which I think is is probably a pretty familiar story to uh, uh, most guitar players out there, grabbing the broom or the tennis racket or something and and just miming away, trying to get your mime chops together. But my mother saw this. Uh, that every time that particular song came on, the same scenario would happen. So she went out and bought me that single, uh, Elvis Presley's Jailhouse Rock. Let's hear a little bit of it. Presley, going back of oh, 1957, that was. Okay, we yeah, asked you... F- you know that, you know, just let me get in here. You know that riff, do 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 that he's playing all through that song. When I uh, uh, picked up the bass, that was the first thing I played was the uh, bass guitar. And the, the guy who was teaching me was the guitar player in the band. And he says, Scott, you just can't play just single notes. You know, you, you've got to do some sort of bass run in there. Let me show you one. And he showed me that riff. And I was so proud of myself that it, that I could actually play that riff. I played it on everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a favorite album. You've nominated an album from 1967, Cream, Disraeli Gears. Tell us about this. Well, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, the 
the favorite album. That's just that's way too hard to pick uh, uh, an album that's going to be your all time lifetime favorite. But uh, it was an album that was really uh, influential uh, on my life, you know, because uh, I always thought Eric Clapton was always a, a big hero of mine. And, you know, to be to be thinking that it's a three piece that's, you know, that, that's putting out this pretty big sound. Right. And, and there's old EC every time he hit, uh, you know, his lead guitar section. It was always a memorable, a very memorable lead guitar. It wasn't just kind of slashing around and burning the neck and all that. It, uh, it, it, it there were like not all of it, but it seemed like they were very well thought out uh, lead guitar solos. So I kind of really honed in on on that side of it, of, of what this guy was doing and, and how he was approaching each song. So it, it became uh, it became pretty influential in my life and how I kind of uh, 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 adopted that attitude towards, uh, you know, Thin Lizzy and, and my solo work and uh, subsequent bands after that. Let's hear a little bit of Sunshine of Your Love. It's getting near dawn When lights close the tired eyes I'll soon be with you, my love heard that for so long cream sunshine of <laughs> <Me> your love <laughs> okay we asked you for favourite bands and again it's probably impossible for you to nominate one particular one but I am going to ask you to talk about one of those you nominated Led Zeppelin uh, particularly because Jimmy Page has previously been a guest on this show he was on at the time of the 40th anniversary a reissue of Physical Graffiti and just such a magnificent guitarist and an absolutely terrific oh, yeah. band. But for you, as a guitarist, what was it that you loved so much about Zeppelin? Uh, a lot of it was uh, the actual grooves that they came up with. I mean, they just came up with these monster grooves, you know. Uh, and that, that was the first thing that, that really caught me. I, I, I remember the first time I heard uh, Stairway to Heaven, for God's sakes, right? And uh, Jimmy Page, uh, you know, hits his solo section and it was the tone of his guitar was perfect. The notes that he picked out were perfect. And and I I would almost swear blind that that was not an improvised solo. I think Jimmy sat down and he he just learned that solo and went section by section because he he knew that this was going to be an important song, right? And as soon as I heard <clears throat> sorry, as soon as I heard that song that solo, that that's it. That's I, I want to play that solo. I, that's how I want to sound. You know, that's that's it, right? So, uh, and, and once again, it was one of those bands that as soon as they, you know, hit the airwaves, especially in America, 
uh, they became so huge, so influential to, uh, to, to the whole of the rock scene that uh, I kind of don't know how the rock scene would have evolved unless Led Zeppelin was actually there doing it and showing everybody how it's done. What we have is from Led Zeppelin 3 in 1970. This is Immigrant Song. Immigrant song, over 50 years old now at this stage, Scott. <laughs> wow. But you see what I mean by the grooves? Yeah. Uh, you're, you're instantly drawn in, you know, uh, good times, bad times. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, they say a whole lot of love for God's sakes. You know, it's every time that groove, uh, it catches you. Right. And and then you add the musicianship onto, you know, the, the whole, you know, the, the whole groove, you know, the, you know, the bass playing, the drumming. Uh, you know, Jimmy's playing and Robert's, you know, singing, you know, he could hit notes that nobody even thought about hitting before. So uh, it was kind of a perfect storm, really, with that band. We also asked you to nominate a best gig and I'm delighted with what you came up on because I'd have to admit that for many years the screensaver on my mobile phone has been a photograph of myself with Alex Lifeson of Rush. Yes, yes. Uh, and I, Rush are probably the band from my teenage years onwards and the rest of it. And I only got to see them play once live when they were here in Dublin and Geddy Lee was a guest here on the programme as well at the time. Mm. But you've nominated mm. uh, Rush gigs because you were at many. Thin Lizzy would have toured with Rush on occasions, didn't you? Well, no, uh, yeah, occasions. I mean, I think on one tour we were at, we were out with him for about two months uh, from the East Coast of America all, all to the all the way to the West Coast, right? And, you know, I'm sorry to say for you, I'm feeling sorry for you there. You only got to see him once. I mean, I potentially could have, could have watched them every night, you know, uh, and from the side of the stage. So that was uh, a very cool view view of, you know, any band that, that you really like. But I remember the one of the, I think it was the very first show we played with uh, with Rush, and we had done our sound check, and I didn't really want to go back to the hotel. So I, you know, went up into the balcony, and I, you know, watched the guys uh, uh Put up, uh, you know, their road crew put up their uh, their gear, right? But I'm particularly watching uh, the uh, the drum tech, right? And he and he's putting up what looks like almost a four poster bed around uh, Neil Pert, right? Uh, his drums, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? You know, uh, you know, they were always talking about building the drums, right? 
Okay, what does that mean? You know, you, you know, you, surely you're just going to put the drums up, right? No, we we build the drums here. And I thought, okay, this is getting a bit pretentious. So I come <laughs> up on the balcony, you know, and I'm watching this, and they're putting this percussion instrument on there, and that one, and that one over there, and then that one, and he's he's there must be like I know ten different percussion instruments on this cage that they built around Neil, and I, you know. And I've apologized to Neil about this, right? But I thought, who does this guy think he is? You know, uh, uh, the ego on this is just tremendously large. And I bet he doesn't even hit half of those, right? So that first night, uh, I particularly watched Neil on that first night. And he not only hit all of those instruments, he hit them like three or four times, right? Uh, And he ended up probably being one of my all-time favorite drummers and just a supremely cool guy at the same time. So unfortunately, really, of course, died there there in the last couple of years yeah. as well. Died prematurely. But a tremendous yeah. lyricist as well. For Rush as well has been probably the best drummer I think I can ever remember hearing. Let's get a little bit of Rush Limelight live in Montreal, 1981. I'm always happy any night I get to play a bit of Rush here on The Last Word of Today FM. It doesn't happen very often. And Scott, you have picked a book for us as your favourite book, which is very definitely the first of any of our guests. But you really are actually playing to my current day prejudices with this one as well. You've gone for a book called Ben Hogan and the Modern Fundamentals of Golf. Tell us why. Yes. Well, you know, I was in uh, Oxford uh, one day and there was this uh, vintage bookshop you know, and I thought, okay, I was, let's go have a little browse around. And, and uh, this was right in, you know, in the heart of my just being so totally jacked up on golf, right? I was trying to learn everything I could about it. I wanted to get as best at this game I possibly could. Uh, it's definitely the, the hardest game uh, I've ever tried. And I've tried all the sports, but, uh, and you'll notice every other professional sports person out there plays golf because they know how hard this game is, right? So I came across this Ben Hogan book, and I, you know, I knew about Ben Hogan. He was like one of the absolute all-time greats. But I opened the page of, the, of this book, and there were the most beautiful illustrations and drawings of just his hands on the club, right? Uh, his posture o- over the ball, 
and it, this is all hand-drawn uh, stuff, you know, and it, it, it was just beautiful. And in between the drawings, he's actually, you know, trying to teach you the mechanics of the swing and how what to do and what not to do. And it just became one of those kind of go-to books, you know, you'd come home uh, after a really bad day on the golf course and you'd try to look for the chapter of, you know, where you had gone wrong and, and you'd read about it and you'd think, all right, okay. Uh, I got to try that the, the next time I get out there. You know, more times than not, it it, it actually did work, uh, his teachings. Uh, not all the time, you know, but uh, but but really, it, you know, the, the book is it's just so beautifully put together with the illustrations. I, I've had it now for, geez, 25, maybe 30 years sitting in my, my bookshelf. So well, as it happens, okay, this won't help with the illustrations, but there's an audiobook version and we have a clip from it. How then do you build a swing that you can depend on to repeat in all kinds of wind and weather, under all kinds of presses and pressure? Having devoted the bulk of my waking hours, and a few of my sleeping hours, for a quarter of a century to the pursuit of the answer, I now believe that what I have learned can be of tremendous assistance to all golfers. That's my reason for undertaking this series of lessons. I don't propose to deal in theory. What I have learned, I have learned by laborious trial and error, watching a good player do something that looked right to me, stumbling across something that felt right to me, experimenting with that something to see if it helped or hindered, adopting it if it helped, refining it sometimes, discarding it if it didn't help, sometimes discarding it later if it proved undependable in competition, experimenting continually with new ideas and old ideas and all manner of variations until I arrived at a set of fundamentals that appeared to me to be right because they accomplished a very definite purpose. A set of fundamentals which proved to me they were right because they stood up and produced under all kinds of pressure. Given that I'm a new convert to the game and guess my new <laughs> obsession, I might have to get that book as well. It doesn't seem very rock and roll though, golf, does it, Scott? Or given that Alice Cooper is involved, are there many other uh, rock yeah, stars I, who all take up golf as well? Yeah, I've played with uh, Alice Cooper a few times, and I've I've been out there on uh, the course with Alex Lifeson, also Damon Hill from uh, Formula One. Uh, so you you really do meet a lot of people out on the golf course that you necessarily wouldn't wouldn't meet any place else i mean i'm sorry to drop a name here but i'm i'm playing golf with uh, john mcmcenroe and peter fleming on sunday right? so uh but it, it's a it's a real neutral place you know no matter how good you are at what you do professionally uh you're a ground zero now as soon as you as soon as you tee up that ball right so everybody starts the same now and you <laughs> You're either going to hit that ball well or you're not, you know, so uh, it's a good level playing field to be out there with, with guys you think might have uh, huge egos or they're really great at what they do in their proper profession. But like I say, now now you're on an even playing field. And let's let's see what you got, right? I hear that you uh, watch an awful lot of uh, documentaries, a big fan of the yes. documentary channel, and particularly World War II documentaries. So we have a clip from one that I remember from my childhood, which is still an absolute classic, the 1973 documentary series, The World at War. Let's hear it. Mm. From the first moment, Hitler unleashed his promised campaign against the Jews. The SA organized boycotts of Jewish-owned shops. The real point 
was to encourage the German people to think and act anti-Semitic as a matter of course. The outside world was horrified. But there were those, including many German Jews, who thought the anti-Jewish campaign the work of Nazi extremists, something Herr Hitler would put a stop to when he felt more secure. There was to be a cultural revolution too. German culture would be purged of the Jewish Bolshevist taint. The books flew into the fire. Many of those who flung them were students and teachers. And as the sparks rose, the intellectuals fled, writers and scientists, to give their talents to Western Europe and America. With Laurence Olivier doing a magnificent narration. Yes. <clears throat> and I still, I actually have the box set at home, which I keep meaning to watch again and get my children to watch with me, because that is yeah. just such magnificent portrayal of one of the most dreadful times of 20th century. No kid. No kid. Well, I got to tell you, in uh, school in uh, Glendale, California, uh, I went to school right in the absolute depths of the Cold War, right? Anything democracy was wonderful, anything communist was, we don't even talk about that, which is pretty much what happened when, you know, when we got to the subject of uh, World War II. You know, it was all kind of pounded in you that America won the war almost by ourselves. And yeah, well, there was Great Britain and uh, well, OK, Canada was there and all right, Australia, France. And you had to, the whole list of the democratic nations were in World War Two. And then they reluctantly pulling their teeth out, having to say this. Oh, yeah, well, Russia was there, too. And that was the end of it. That's all you heard about, you know, Russia. They did not because of the Cold War. They did not want to give Russia any kind of uh, points at all for, for being in World War II. So years later, I moved to England, and I'm there for a couple of years, and, uh, uh, the you know, the world at war came out, you know, and I started why And because of Lawrence Olivier, you know, he's, what a great voice. His his narration is just superb all the way through this thing, right? But we they, he gets to onto the chapter of, uh, uh, you know, Leningrad and Stalingrad and how the Germans were just the blitzkrieg and how they were just mowing everything down in in front of them. Right. And, but the Russians would not give in. Uh, Hitler would Hitler just wanted to destroy the whole of the Soviet Union. He just wanted to eliminate them. Right. And, you know, Stalin, for as, as horrible as he was, was not going to let that happen to, to his country. And especially to Stalingrad that was named after him. So you saw and I learned you know, what a huge, significant part that Russia played in World War II and how many of the Russian people died for the cause. It was something like 22 or 23 million people, which was a, just this ungodly number. Right. And I'm not told about this. You know, they don't they don't teach you this. Right. So. That got me thinking, well, what else have, has been omitted from my education? Uh, and, I, and I do want to say the education I got in, in uh, California, it was great. It was superb, right? Except for on, on these few points, right? So that's what got me into, you know, the documentary side of things is, uh, you know, maybe try to educate myself on this to see, you know, what these people went through and you know, actually all the different subjects of, of what people have gone through in their lives on different subjects. Right. And it's, uh, I find that uh, documentaries are so, uh, 
uh, compelling. And obviously the documentary makers, they go deep uh, into factual history. So you, you really need to listen to them and, and believe what they say. So, Scott Gorham, to finish, surprise me now with your choice of favourite theatre musical or show because you've gone for the Nutcracker by the Bolshoi Bally. How was that? I know, it's a really strange choice, isn't it? You would think, right? But uh, my wife's parents, uh, who are Austrian, uh, had come over and they were staying with us for a couple of weeks. And Christine, my wife, thought, well, this will be a you know, great idea. I'll, I'll, you know, we'll buy four tickets. Well, we'll go into the West End, have dinner, uh, and we'll see uh, the Nutcracker with uh, the Bolshoi Ballet. And Santa Christine, I really, you know, you, you couldn't have picked something else. You know, we got to go to a ballet, for God's sakes. Oh, man, you know, I'm just, I'm, the, I'm not looking forward to this at all, right? So comes the night, and we go down the West End, we have dinner, and we walk into the theater. And it's a, I can't remember what theater it was, but it's just beautiful theater, right? And we've got great seats, right? And <clears throat> the lights go down, and I'm watching these dancers. Uh, Matt, it, it, they're unbelievable. You know, these, these, they're honest-to-God uh, athletes. Uh, I've got a friend of mine at the golf club who's a, a lead ballet dancer himself and he was telling me about you know the injuries that uh, these ballet people get and it's consistent with uh, any you know track sport or football or or anything right but I, I I'm, I'm watching this and I'm realizing you know these men are lifting the women up with which seems like just no effort at all and spinning them around in the air and you know the jumps uh, I was and then the sets you know the sets they're done so well, you don't even realize that the set has changed. You know, it's like almost a completely different location, and you have no idea how they did that. You know, I mean, in, in rock music, it's pretty easy. You know, you throw up a screen, and you, you see the change and the different colored lights. But with this, it's it's almost like a little bit of magic going on up there. So I was supremely impressed. I apologized profusely to my wife <laughs> for, for doubting her. And it was Christmas time, so you know the the Hollywood uh, production of the Nutcracker came on. I went, okay, I'll, I'll give this a go. And this is an American company, <clears throat> and it was probably the lamest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, the, the the Russians just so you know beat the the American effort by miles and miles that uh, I even uh, I appreciated the Bolshoi Ballet uh, even more. So. Uh, it was well. It was well worth going to see it. I would probably go and see it again. Well, there you are. There's an endorsement that I didn't expect. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Gorham, again, thank you so much for being with us here on the Last Word of Today FM for our Culture Club. It has been terrific having the opportunity to talk to you, and particularly given that the last time I saw you in the flesh was on the stage in the City Hall in Cork City back in 1983, many many years ago. Great to get a Good. chance to talk to you now. Okay, well, thanks, Matt. God, 1983, boy, we were young lads back then. <laughs> but, like, hey, thanks for having me on, Matt. You're you're great. All your questions were great. And thank you so much for that. I want to say hi to everybody in Ireland, too. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.